sometimes te- the understanding the Bible or teaching the Bible can be, you've got to work hard to find relevance. And it, you, it can feel like Romans 9 to 11, all the talk about Israel and anti-Semitism. It can be hard to think, oh, what does this actually mean for us? The text for today, and you're getting a handout of it because I wanted to make this easy for you. The text for today really doesn't, it needs almost no explanation because it is so unbelievably obvious and powerful and profound. And if we all just did this, life would be phenomenal. Really, that's the sermon. Here it is. Go, go away and do it. Yeah, go and do likewise. It's not complex. But I feel like I need to say a few things. And the reason I gave this to you is because out of the whole list of things that are there, let's assume for a moment that God will have a specific thing that he wants to say to you this morning or a specific challenge out of this that he's going to say, hey, I want you to do this week. Because there's a lot there. You can't do everything, but you could maybe do one thing. I want that in front of you, and I want you to think about that and pay attention to it, and then maybe you could even take this home and put this on your fridge or somewhere where everyone's gonna, where you're going to see it regularly. So let's pray, Lord, as we think about love and about your plan for our lives and for this world, may you speak to us. Holy Spirit, give us hearts and minds that want to hear what you've got to say and that will we'll do what you want us to do. Amen. Now, one of the ongoing challenges in this world, which, uh, which the book of Romans is addressing, is the, is the challenge of how is God going to overcome evil in the world? And now, I don't know about you, but evil is an ever-present reality, isn't it? You look around, and there's so much that's messed up with the world. The question is, if there's a good God, and he's a loving God, and he's a powerful God, what is God doing about evil in the world? And that's a good question. I'll introduce at this point a biblical cosmology. We're going to give, we're going to, before we get to address this, you've got to understand the whole thing of what God is on about. Okay, so the world's a mess. Adam and Eve started. God had a plan. Where's God gone? Come on, God. Ah. I thought God had a plan. God had a plan through Adam and Eve to bring his love and his rule and his order and to push back the boundaries of the Garden of Eden until it covered the whole earth. So there's the world, it's chaotic, formless and void, and now God is going to, he puts the garden in the center with Adam and Eve, and the plan is to expand the garden across the entire universe. And that's the plan. So God does, so that's how it starts. What happens though is Adam and Eve go, oh, I don't really want to play my part in this. And and Adam and Eve, here we go, we're now in a place to draw. There are Adam and Eve. God's plan is to use them to, as it were, fill the world with, with God's glory. So order, glory, love, life. This was meant to be expanded across the whole world, right? Uh, Satan comes along, uh, and uh, what Satan does 
is he undermines that by getting into, as we looked at, the mind of Eve, the mind of Adam, and, and undermines that. And so what Satan is interested in doing is pushing back against all of this. So that, in fact, the, so that chaos and evil and sin and destruction and death triumph. Okay, does that make sense? So what have we got here? Chaos, evil, destruction, and death. So that's the story. Now, uh, of course, Adam and Eve fail to do that. The world continues to be full of chaos and destruction, and there's this battle going on. And So what, in the end, we jump right forward ahead to um, God's great plan. God has a puts at the center of this, not Adam and Eve, but Jesus. Yep, so let's represent Jesus by the cross. And at the center of this now, of this battle, is the cross of Christ, is the, the one true human Jesus. Sin and death seem to work to defeat him. It kills him, but he rises from the dead. And then what is God's plan? God's plan is to gather around the cross a group of people, to take up Adam and Eve's mandate and to be, and this little group's job is to live out a world of order and love and life and peace, also known as, as the kingdom. They live with God in the kingdom of heaven. And that job is exactly the same job as Adam and Eve, to expand this kingdom of heaven, to push back all the chaos, the evil, the destruction, the death, and to push that back, starting from this little group and outwards. So if you think about us here this morning, our job is to gather around Jesus, be full of the Spirit, and to live out the kingdom of God now, and then as we do that, to push back the frontiers of evil in the world, to overcome evil in the world. But it always starts with this group of people. The big, does that make sense? The big trap that we fall into, and by we I mean me, is I can, be, I can think all about the evil out there. Oh, Russia. The, the earthquakes, the floods, random evil, all the tragedies out there that it can make me feel completely helpless and powerless and despairing that God, at God's plan. God's plan is always to give you and I agency in the world to be instruments of love and of justice in our sphere. It's much easier to love people and love justice in the abstract at a distance than it is to love the person on the other side of the bed or the other side of the pew or the other side of the office cubicle. <laughs> Actually loving someone concretely, enacting justice in our immediate sphere is much harder often than just thinking about it out there. Now, for sure we've got to think about it out there 
and to the extent that we can, we've got to act and be concerned. As Rafe led us in prayers for IJM and for Open Doors and for reconciliation and all the good things, all the important things. But God's plan is always to work through people in the areas where they have influence to push back evil and to bring in good. Make sense? Now you say, what does that have to do with Romans 12? Romans 12 is all about how love defeats evil. So look at verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. That's the first thing. Hate evil. Paul Keating said once he was a very good hater. Do you remember that? Yeah, a great comment from a politician. Now, as Christians, we should be really good haters. We should be better haters than Paul Keating, shouldn't we? Just, you got to hate evil, <laughs> not other people who get in the way of achieving your goals. Uh, hate evil and cling to what is good. And then the end of the chapter, this is like a sandwich. This, is, this tells us this whole thing of love has a positive thing, which is overcoming evil. He says, what is the whole point of this? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So that's the sandwich. Hate evil, cling to what's good. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, of course, that's a challenge, that verse. It assumes that it is possible for you and I to be overcome with evil. Don't be naive. Don't be naive. This happens in communities of faith, in churches, don't, doesn't it? Churches divided by broken relationships, rocked by greed and selfishness and power struggles, split apart by racial divisions and Christians tearing each other apart in business with each other. Christians consumed by gossip, institutional, an institutionalized covering up of the evil of sexual abuse. Christians going to war with other Christians because they confuse nationalism with the kingdom of God. It's, Christians can be overcome by evil. But that's not the goal. We're to overcome evil with good. And how do we do that? These intervening verses show how we're to do that. Now, you may not be as... You, the, the force of these verses may be somewhat lost on you because we read what's here and we think it's obvious. Don't we? You read this and you go, yeah, that's obvious. Forgive people. Don't take vengeance. You know, the only reason we think these verses are obvious is because we as Christians have been so good over 2,000 years at Christianizing our culture. It's the only reason. No culture untouched. Yeah, when this was written, let's pick first, let's look at this. Okay, love must be sincere. Okay, no hypocrisy. Don't pretend. Yeah. Don't, don't use the guise of love simply to advance your own interests. You've got to hate evil, cling to what's good. And then it says this, be devoted to one another in love. Okay. But look at something that's completely radical. Verse 10, honor one another above yourselves. 
we think that's obvious. We as a culture, if, if we've, we've institutionalized this idea of humility and putting others ahead of yourselves. That's just a uniquely Christian view. No other religion or culture has that as a key virtue. In fact, in a shame honor culture, you would never honor someone above yourself. That's an outrageous thing to do. It's absolutely outrageous. That's completely unthinkable. But here it is. How do we overcome evil in the world? It's by building a community where we sincerely love each other and where we enact that love. And we do that one relationship at a time, one community at a time. And over the last 2,000 years, what we've seen is that has achieved an extraordinary amount of cultural transformation. It's remarkable. We can sometimes think, oh, Christian, we're, we're on the back foot as Christians. We haven't achieved very much. We're a marginalized little group here in Australia and in the Western world. And at one level, that may be true. Uh, but at a very profound level, this plan of God's has been extraordinary. Um, and it's succeeded in, in, in pushing back evil in all kinds of ways. I'll give you an example. I don't know if we don't want to overthink this, but our world has gone from like a billion people existing in the world to what, seven billion, eight billion people? That's a lot of love. That's an incredible achievement of humankind. And we've done that largely because of the way Christianity has shaped the worldview of the Western world that has enabled science, liberal democracy, nation states, and a capacity to cooperate with each other that is unheard of, and we've managed to export that around the world. The scientific worldview that has underpinned the increased carrying capacity of the globe is largely supported by the, the Christian worldviews. You can think at a, at a broad level how God has been at work in the human history shaped and has been working in and through the Christian community and worldview and ideas of Scripture to push back evil and increase human good. So, that's the big picture. But look at the challenge. It never goes away. What sort of a hater are you? How strongly are you clinging to good? How devoted are you to one another in love? We talked a bit about this last week, the difference between a cafe and a community. You typically are not called to be devoted to your cafe. If the coffee is bad for a week in a row or two weeks and it really stops meeting your needs, it's quite okay to move on. You feel a little sad, and, but you move on. In, in community and relationships, that's not on view at all. There's a level of a wholehearted devotion to each other that is required to push back evil, to go beyond the consumer engagement with each other, the contract, you give me what I need, I give you what you need, to the covenant of Christian community that says, I will serve you and be devoted to you no matter what. And as part of that, we're to stop jockeying for position in the church. Yeah. Honor one another above yourselves. Now, actually, I wanted to stop right here, and you might be thinking, that's a bit much for a church. That's too, much too hard to put into practice with 50 people or 100 people in a church. Okay, this is a good recipe in a marriage. 
Try this in your marriage. Don't jockey for position in your marriage. In marriages, we all do that. I do that subtly. We all tend to. We want to get our own way. Cooperating around shared tasks is just hard. And we're all a pain. And we're all selfish. Okay, it might be too hard to be devoted to each other here. Start with your marriage. Okay, so maybe that's really hard. Start with your dog. I don't know, just practice somehow. Start a little step. Honor one another. Don't jockey for position. Don't always have... This is a particular tendency I have. I'm sure you don't struggle with it. For me, one of the things this looks like, and I got this from Dallas Willard, and I'm particularly poor at enacting this spiritual discipline, one of the ways to not jockey for position and honor another above yourself is by not always having to have the last word. I remember reading Willard, Dallas Willard suggesting this, and I thought, that's such a dumb idea. Well, having the last word is what it's, that's, why would you not have the last word? Because when you have the last word, you're putting yourself in a position of honor, of power, of, you've got the, so don't have the last, deliberately don't have the last, have to have the last word in your key relationships. Try that at work. Try that in church. If you're a lawyer, this could be a trick. Uh, maybe don't do the, pick your clients. Um, Honor one another above yourselves. Imagine how different we stand. When you do that, you stand out in our culture. We're not an honor-shame culture, but we're an intensely competitive culture, aren't we? We just compete not for honor and shame, but for money and for approval, for social position. Now that can be hard. Living this way is hard. So what Paul says is, don't be lacking in zeal. Don't get, don't become lukewarm. There is such a temptation. Uh, from the get-go, the Bible acknowledges us that our zeal, our spiritual fervor can diminish. And we just get bored and cynical and disengaged and lukewarm, and we go through the motions of faith. This can happen in any sphere of life, can't it? You can find yourself going through the motions at work. You can find yourself going through the motions in your home life, in your marriage. Even in parenting, it can be very difficult at times. And certainly that's true with regard to God. And don't lose your spiritual fervor. There used to be a, and I think it was, what was it, Anglican, there was a Anglican, there was a women's movement in the Anglican church, a renewal movement called Women Aglow. Back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, I think. And it was an old translation of this verse. And the goal was to keep the passion and the fire of faith burning bright in the hearts of good Anglican women. Quaint name, but what a great vision. And I think for us, as, as we get older in life, don't, don't be lacking in zeal. Zeal, fervor, passion should not be squashed 
just by the passing of time. In fact, it should be just the opposite. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more passionate you should get. For at least one reason, statistically, every day that passes is another day you are statistically more likely to meet him face to face. <laughs> You're one day closer to being face to face with Jesus, right? So that's awesome. I'll tell you the other thing that should happen. If you honestly look at the world as you get older, that most things are relatively unimportant. The things that we think are so incredibly important in our teens become less important in our 20s. The things that we think are so important in our 20s become less important in our 30s. And as so it goes on. And the thing that stays of, should stay as of singular importance is God. Because that's all we've got left. When I was praying with Ali, who we'll bury this afternoon, and talking with her and praying with her a couple of weeks ago, I recommend praying with a deep, with a passionate Christian person who's on their deathbed and who's thought through the meaning of life. Because when you come right up close and you know that you've got a week or two to live, I tell you what, the level of clarity about what's important is extraordinary. It's just God and the people around you. It's every, nothing else, everything else fades. So don't be lacking in zeal. And then verse 12, I don't know. You need hope in this journey, and you're going to be afflicted, and you've got to pray. So in the middle of your hope, be full of joy. Here's an exercise you could do. You could take this verse and you could do a you could do a self-rated scale of zero to ten. And you could say, on a scale of zero to ten, how much joy is there do I find in my hope? Or you know, zero to ten, where zero is I'm completely hopeless, and ten is I'm just so full of, I'm so so completely joyless, uh, and and ten is I'm overflowing with joy all the time. Where are you on that? And, and you could do a simple exercise. You could say to someone who's close to you, how joyful in hope do you think I am on a scale of 1 to 10? <laughs> and then what would you do? And then you might say, if you're like, I'm probably I'm a 3 or a 4, you go, that's not good. God says I should be like a 7 or an 8. So maybe you could pray and say, Lord, I want more joy in my hope. Okay, so how would you develop that? Pray, talk about it, ask God to start in your life. Okay, so you could do the same thing with patience in your affliction. Maybe there's an ongoing affliction that you struggle with. And life's hard in, in a variety of ways. You say, how patient are you with it? rate yourself and go, okay, now how would I become a little more patient? Because I'm assuming this is God's plan for us, right? Like he tells us this is how we should live. And how, and then maybe think about your prayer life. How faithful are you? Rachel, how faithful are you in prayer? How faithful am I? Now what would it mean to be faithful in prayer? It just means you're going to keep on praying, doesn't it? Full of faith. You believe as you come to pray that God can work and God can act.
and you don't stop. And if you're like me, you'd rate yourself like a 2 out of 10. It was easy in, when I was younger, but then the longer you go on and the more it seems like nothing happens, the harder it gets to keep your faith up and the harder it gets to pray. And so you give up and, and you just go, oh, okay. Yeah, no, that's not good. Come on. Let's be faithful in prayer. So there we go. There's some application. You can just self-rate. Maybe in your small group, if you want to feel really vulnerable and honest, you could do that little exercise just with that verse. Look at verse 12. Print that out and put that on a screensaver. This passage is like a, it's like a manifesto for love enacted. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Uh, we're doing, we're collecting stuff up the back for uh, the pantry. Uh, one of the things, but, but do you know people who are in need? Do, are we close enough to each other to meet each other's needs? Practice hospitality. I was thinking about this. In Sydney, we're not, and in big cities, we're not very good at hospitality. We meet each other in coffee shops, and that's okay. We're all very busy. But here's a thought, and I'll just put it out there. Wouldn't it be cool if in six months' time, everyone in our church had been in each other's homes? I don't know, just have people around. Invite yourself over. Drop in to someone else's home. I was walking the dog past down in Balmain the other day, and I walked past someone from church, and I thought to myself, it was a Friday afternoon, and I thought, I wonder if I should just drop in and see if they're home. And then I didn't. But I thought that would be... In, in years ago, you would have done that. And in a small town, you might have done that. And I don't know. Practice hospitality. Open your home. We see, now of course there's lots of good reasons why we don't practice hospitality. Firstly, we're busy. Secondly, what? Why don't we practice hospitality? It takes effort. Our houses, it makes, it's, we feel too vulnerable and exposed when you let someone into your home, right? They'll, they might see what you're really like. You, you might not, the, your doors might not be as magic as the church doors with the capacity to cover over all your <laughs> inadequacies. So they might see what you're like, like you're actually a little bit messy. Maybe you're not perfect. We all think you're perfect, and of course. But if you come into our home, maybe you'll see that we're not. And so, yeah, it's inconvenient. You've got to, you do have to tidy up a little, apparently. You've got to clean the bathroom at least, clean the toilet before guests come. That's apparently a good idea. Like, that's inconvenient. <laughs> so there's all sorts of reasons to not in our culture. And in Sydney, we struggle with that a bit. So you go, okay, so maybe, and I've no, I'm not, this is just thinking off the top of my head. Like, how do we share hospitality, practice it? And then not just church folk, but actually, Try and involve, open our lives up to the inconvenience, to be inconvenienced by other people. And as we've said regularly, people are really annoying. So it's not always fun and easy, but that's okay. That's just what it is. And then it, if you think those, that those first verses are hard, this is where it gets, it keeps, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Oh, man. Non-retaliation. 
We'll hear more about that in a moment. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. I, I think verse 15 is one of the most profound verses. Radical empathy. The, the way of the world generally is to, is to be happy when people around you encounter setbacks because it makes you feel a little bit better about yourself. I was talking with someone in the community during the week and they're going through very substantial financial challenges. And there's just a little bit of me and it's a horrible, ungodly, unredeemed, awful part of me that is, oh, man, I'm glad it's them and it's not me. <laughs> Whew. I feel a little better about my prudent financial decisions. I haven't, we aren't overextended. We didn't get too greedy and borrow too much. That's a terrible... Now, most of me was alongside of them. But there's a part of us that delights that it's not us. <laughs> Jeez. <sighs> Dodge that bullet. And it gets even worse if it's someone who's a competitor of yours. This was a friend. <laughs> and there's still a little bit of me. And it's an ugly bit of me. And it's a bit of me that I put to death. Take outside and beat that part of me to death, ask Jesus to deal with it and repent of it. But it's worse if it's, if it's a competitor at work or someone you don't like. Now, of course, and then the other thing is, of course, when someone does really well, there's a bit of us that's, oh, I wish that was me, a bit of jealousy, a bit of envy. It's so human, isn't it? The path of spiritual maturity is to love someone. And practically what that means is even if you're my competitor, if something really great happens with you, I'll rejoice with you. And if something terrible happens, I'll weep with you. I don't know. Like that's, and that's what we're meant to be like as a church family. And we are. And I've, we've all experienced that. Just don't be... Just think we've got to be realistic about those parts of ourselves that are still sinful and unredeemed and ugly. You just own them and repent of them. and oh, Okay, but that's the vision. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Oh. Oh. Have you ever been to a social gathering or a work function or maybe church, and you're talking with someone... And you just realize that they're not that interested in talking to you and they're scanning the room for someone more significant and important to talk to. Has that ever happened to you? How does that make you feel? It's, just, it's terrible, right? We're all wired up in our primate organization to be acutely aware of where we stand in the social hierarchy of a system and the natural human tendency is want to see who are the high status people around and gravitate to them so that their status and influence and power can draw us up the social hierarchy. And, and the Christian in the kingdom of heaven, love means going, no, I'm not just always going to be scanning the room to see who's got social status above mine that I can attach myself to, I'm going to be scanning the room to see those who are low status who just need me to go and pay some attention to them. I'll tell you some, uh, one of the reasons, and, and we all know this, when you meet someone 
who pays you great attention even when you have nothing to offer them, they stand out a mile, don't they? There's nothing in it for them. I remember this particularly as a younger guy, meeting people who would give me the time of day and great attention when I had nothing, I was not adding anything to them and no value to them. There we go. Don't be conceited. That's never a problem in our culture. It's never a problem here. And then, of course, you can do all of that, but people can still, you can treat everyone that, do all the right stuff your own way, but you know what? People are still going to treat you evilly. They're going to do evil to you. So you've done whatever you can, and then Paul, with great honesty, says this, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So evil's going to come your way, but, and then verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I.e., sometimes you're not going to be able to live at peace with everyone. Sometimes others are going to go to war with you. And it's not going to be, it's not in your power to resolve. But do what you can. And the most important thing you can do, when you can't live at peace with someone, when someone is evil and genuinely evil towards you, and it's unreconciled and unreconcilable, and they don't want mediation, and they don't want peacemaking, and they just keep coming at you, and they keep coming at you, and they don't want to do anything uh, to resolve the matters... Uh, verse 19, you've done everything you can, but the last thing you should not do is don't take revenge. <laughs> don't take revenge. Now, if you've never thought of taking revenge on someone, you're not human. Just think about it. You're just not. We all, when we've been hurt and slighted, our minds naturally go to how we can get back at the other person. We do it in our workplaces. We do it in our marriages. We do it in our friendships. We do it in our churches. We do it everywhere. Paul says, don't take revenge, my dear friends. Why? <laughs> because you're a pushover, because evil will triumph because you've just got to be weak. He says, no, I love this, leave room for God's wrath. The only thing that breaks the human spiral of revenge, cycle of revenge seeking, is an understanding that God will judge everyone at the end of the day and all evil will be punished. So it's not up, we don't, you and I don't have to enact revenge now. God says, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to eat. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That phrase, heap burning coals on his head, the commentators seem to think, is about shaming them. So when you are ashamed, you blush, you go red, you're flushed. It seems to be that's the image there. So when someone has done evil to you, shame them by doing good to them and leave it up to God to judge them. That brings, I don't know, but that brings me enormous comfort. It's incredibly freeing. I don't have to worry about punishing the evil that has been done to me over the course of my life. Do your best. 
as far as it's possible, live at peace with everyone, love them, do good to them. But there's a lot of evil people in the world. You can do all the good you want to all the people in the world, and people will still take advantage of you. You may still have been sexually assaulted as a kid. You may still have been bankrupted by a corrupt business partner. You may still have had a doctor commit egregious malpractice against you. You may still have had a, a partner be unfaithful to you. You may still have been assaulted by a colleague at work. You may still, there's all kinds of evil. You can't begin to imagine all the evil in the world. I don't know, I just go, make room for God's wrath. God calls us to hate evil because God hates evil and God will put an end to it all and everything will be right in the end. I don't know about you, but I find that enormously comforting. <laughs> I think Christianity is great news. Like Jesus, I, don't, I don't have to solve everything and make everything right. God will. No one's going to get away with anything. Isn't that good news? No one's going to get away with anything. Good old Putin and Prigozhin, and all the, the genocidal Russian military who've, who've committed some pretty horrendous things, done some horrendous things in Ukraine and in Syria and in Chechnya, and you just think of all that, and you go, They're not, none of them are going to get away with that. They'll be punished for it. Maybe not in the international criminal court, but in God's eternal courts, man, they're going to, they're going to get it. I think that's a great... <laughs> now, of course... You and I might as well, so just be careful. Turn to Jesus. Do good. God's wrath is not to be trifled with. There we go. And then, don't overcome, as we do all that, we will overcome evil with good. That seems to end with a bit of hope. I don't know, that's our job. Let's go out and deal with the evil in here, deal with the evil in here, and as we do that, We'll be pushing back evil socially and culturally and working with God in the doing of that. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you will help us to overcome evil with good. And when it seems completely hopeless and the evil is overwhelming and crushing us, may we, in those moments, trust that you will be the one who will ultimately deal with evil and may we leave room for your wrath and may we trust you and do all the things that you exhort us to do in this text and we ask this in your name lord amen